series called Less is More. Any of you come from a marketing background? Raise your hand. So you probably know that expression, Robert, less is more. And it's become quite popular today, and uh, I find that it does have application even in the church. Because the truth be told, we know too much. We know way too much. And what we obey is really small compared to what we know. Uh, Sometimes I think the problem with us is that we, we have the Bible. You say, well, how can that be a problem? Well, if you look at the people back in the first century and even before, and they had, you know, they need the Bible still being formed, and they had, you know, a little, if they could read, they may have had a manuscript, or they may have had a book, or they may have had a, you know, Paul's letter to their church, you know, got circulated, and that's all they had. But they had a way of looking at that that's so different from the way that we look at it today. And sometimes I think we know too much, we have too much, and we obey so little. And sometimes it's true, less is more. And when you can, when you can increase your level of obedience in the small things, uh, it'll take you farther in the bigger things. So we're going to take a look at the smallest books, the tiniest little books of the New Testament for the next few weeks, all right? Uh, so you're, you're actually going to go through a book of the Bible every time you come here. So you can go tell your friends, I read a whole book of the Bible this week. And your friends will look at you and say, whoa, that's pretty impressive. You read a whole book of the Bible. That's really good. Yeah, it was only 12 verses long. You don't have to tell them that, okay? You just tell them, I read a whole book of the Bible, right? And then, you know, you get growing your confidence and in your understanding. So we're going to do Second uh, uh, John. You say, why do we call it second? Well, I'll get into that in a moment. Third John, we're going to do the book of Jude, and we're going to do the book of Philemon, all right, for the next few weeks. These are the smallest books of the New Testament, but they're packed with all kinds of truth for today. So the first one we're going to do is 2 John. Now, when you pick up your New Testament, you're going to get all confused, especially if you're brand new to it, because you've got all these Johns everywhere. If you, if you look in the, in the table of contents, you say, wow, John's a really popular name, apparently, because you've got John, which is the gospel of John. That's, that's his view of the life of Jesus, and you, you, you see that, and you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, there's John. But that's not the only John that you have in the Bible, because then you have in your table of contents, you see 1 John, or 1 John, 2 John, or 2 John, it'll say, or 3 John. You say, well, all these Johns, you know, what's with, this is probably all the same person, So this man who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote three very, very small uh, letters. The second one and the third one are extremely small. The first one's five chapters, but the second one and the third one are each one chapter. So we'll look into the two smallest ones, all right? For homework, you might want to read 1 John. That's the first one, because if you don't read that one, you might be a little little wondering where you are reading the second one and the third one, okay? Uh, So that's what we'll do. We'll cover two of those Johns, all right? So you can try and find it in your New Testament if you have a paper one, or if you have an electronic Bible, uh, you can turn to 2 John. It's only got one chapter, so, you know, it'll be one page of your Bible, all right? Um, so, I'm going to, to read this in a few moments, but there are three themes that John looks at. 
uh, in this letter, and really in all three of his letters, he's looking at these themes. Even in the Gospel of John, he's looking at these themes, and what he does is he keeps circling around them. He keeps mentioning them over and over and over again in different ways, and he applies things in different ways, but it's the same three themes, and he keeps, he keeps repeating himself and circling those themes, but they're really dramatic, really powerful themes, truth, lies, and love. That's what you'll see in 2 John in particular. But John, he talks about light. He talks about darkness. He talks about truth. He talks about lies. He talks about love. He talks about hatred. Very powerful, uh, dramatic themes is what he's addressing in all of his work. All right. So today we're going to cover truth, lies, and love. Let me read the letter to you just straight out of the New Testament, all right? So it starts this way. The elder to the chosen, uh, the lady chosen by God and to her children. You say, well, who's the elder? Well, the elder is probably this man, John. You will know that by reading 1 John. You will know that by reading the Gospel of John. He's probably referring to himself there as the elder, kind of this spiritual leader. And he's writing to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Is he addressing a specific woman or is he addressing a church? There's a bit of a debate on that, but he's certainly addressing people, believers in any case, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. This is his introduction. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. You see that word truth over and over again. Just as the Father commanded us, and now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands, and you have heard that you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. You see how He repeats Himself, repeats Himself, repeats Himself, and we're kind of saying, how many times do you have to say it? Right? And we think that today, but there's a reason why He's doing this. I'll get into that in a moment. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Woo! It's very strong language. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Wow, very strong language. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send uh, uh, their greetings. End of letter end of the book of the New Testament. So pat yourself on the back. You just read a whole book of the Bible. 
So you got to go like this now. You got to say, congratulations. I just read a whole book of the Bible. You say, well, who cares? What does it mean? I don't understand. It seems like an inside thing. It doesn't really apply to my life. Well, let me challenge you a little bit there. Three themes that, he, that he's talking about that are extremely relevant for today. Truth, lies, and love. Let me just sensitize you to a reality today in the 21st century Western world. We do not live in a Christian culture. I hope you might have noticed that as you walked in to a movie theater today. Where are 95% of the people going who walked into this building? Are they coming here or are they going to see the movies? They're going to the movies, and some of them are going at 10 o'clock in the morning to see the movies, okay? 50 years ago, 30 years ago, this was viewed as, whoa, you know, you're going to see a movie on Sunday morning? Like, should you be in church? You know, those days are gone, gone, gone. Do not kid yourself. This is not a Christian culture. The United States is not a Christian culture. We live in what is called a post-Christian culture or a post-modern culture. What this means, it has several, there's several different identifiers, all right? But what this means essentially is that the worldview that, that you probably hold who are here today, you know, a Judeo-Christian worldview, I'll call it, 98% of the people, certainly in this province, completely reject that worldview. It is no longer the sort of culturally acceptable thing, uh, the idea, the morals and the ethics of the, what we see in the Bible. This is no longer culturally normative. It has been pushed out of the way. And I just need to wake you up maybe to a reality like... This is 30 plus years that this has happened, all right? This isn't something that happened overnight. We're talking about, it's been going on for a long time. So we do not live in a Christian nation, culture, the mindset, the worldview, the morals, the ethics are completely, completely different than the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. So, so, so different. And you've got to know that because when John writes his letter, he's addressing themes that are directly opposite to the way that the culture views these things. Directly opposite, okay? So if you look at the picture there, this is, um, you see the guy's t-shirt. He's at a rally. It says, atheists in science we trust. And you see the little cross has got a red you know, it's X'd out, and you see the little thing of the atom, and of course what he's doing is he's, he's making fun a little bit of the probably the U.S. dollar bill, which says, in God we trust, right? But he's saying, no, in science we trust, because what science has done in his worldview is that it has killed God. It has removed God from the picture. We no longer need this silly mythology of God and this sort of Santa Claus idea of God because in science we trust. This is a typical worldview of postmodernism, post-Christianity. 
science and God contradict. Science has killed God. God is dead. In science we trust. And all the atheists say, yes, yes, yes. And they go to rallies and things like this. All right. Uh, here, here's another picture. You know, the, the lady's got her, her, her sign and, and it's all different colors. And she says, going to hell and proud. You know, and you see they got t-shirts that say the same thing. This is the post-Christian culture. It defies. It doesn't just say, well, we don't care so much. It also defies the Bible. It defies Christianity. It, it, it mocks it. It puts it down. It challenges it. It says, listen, Christianity is a, is a worldview that is any other worldview. It's, just, it's, all, it's all relative. Like, I'm going to hell and proud of it, this one person says. If you look at the, the next picture to the right there, uh, you see the, um, what do you call that fairy tale, uh, the guy who falls off the wall. Humpty Dumpty. Yeah, so Humpty Dumpty, he's got a little sarcastic there. He's got his cigar in his hand, and you probably can't read the words at the bottom. Maybe I'm blocking them, but, but he, says, uh, he says, Didn't you know that words only mean what I want them to mean? Okay, that is, that is typical postmodern, post-Christian thought. So what, what it means is we reinvent the definition of words. And truth is a relative thing that we invent as we go. So let me give you some, some examples that are, you know, kind of controversial, kind of hot-button examples, but they're very relevant for today. So it used to be true that marriage was what? Between one male and one female, exclusively, publicly, in a monogamous relationship for life. This used to be true. We used to say this is what marriage means. Does marriage mean that anymore? Well, no. We've changed the definition and we say, well, no, now there's, there's same-sex marriage. Soon, we'll, I, I think it will come down the pipe eventually, there'll be polygamous marriage. And it'll be, it'll, we'll redefine it again. And what we've done is we've changed the definition of what is true for something like marriage. And we've said, no, it's now we've changed it. And we, we have altered it. And now that is true. Okay? We're doing the same thing with gender. Right? It used to be that, well, you know, when you, when you had a baby... You were all waiting for the baby to be born, and then you'd look at the baby, and you'd say, it's a boy, right? Or it's a girl, right? And you, you did that by visual examination, yes? I mean, you'd know what to look for, right? And then we, we can even do that now with ultrasound. I mean, any of you had an ultrasound done when you were, when you were expecting? Oh, ultrasound is so cool, you know, provided the baby is not bashful. If the baby is bashful, then perhaps you won't know the gender until the baby's born. But when the baby's born, we say, well, it's a boy or, well, it's a girl. You know, we would cut the umbilical cord and off we go. Well, now we don't do that. <laughs> now we say, it's whatever it wants to be. <laughs> well, you know, let the, let the baby choose its own gender. Let, what, what have we done? We've redefined the word according to a new truth. And this is typical, this is what happens in a post-Christian, post-modern culture, all right? All truth, this is the standard line, all truth is relative. You have your truth, you Christians who are here in your movie theater, 
but I have my truth and I'm not in your church and I will never go to your church and my truth is just as true as your truth because all truth is relative uh, there is no absolute truth all truth is relative do you see the problem with the statement all truth is relative except this statement because <laughs> if you say all truth is relative you just made a truth you just made an objective truth by saying all truth is relative and if, if, if it's not well, you just contradicted yourself, right? So for a person to say, you know, all truth is relative or there is no objective truth is to establish an objective truth. So, so, uh, 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 truth. so uh, this is, but this is standard for a post-Christian, post-modern culture. Your kids are growing up in it. Your grandkids are growing up in it. Truth is now whatever we want it to be. And words can be changed according to what we want them to be. All right? So that's what we're living in, and that's what you're facing, and that's why your kids are coming home from school with all of these questions, because they're hearing a worldview, and your grandkids, they're hearing a worldview that directly contradicts what they're learning on Sunday mornings. They are in complete opposition with one another. So... You look at 2 John, for example, and you talk about truth, lies, and love. Here's what he says about truth. Number one, truth exists. It exists. It's real. It exists. He uses the word like crazy in the first two verses even. You know, three, four times he uses it. And he talks about truth as if truth is real. And as if truth is unchanging, and as if truth is a standard by which we live our lives. This is very, very different than what we're hearing about truth today. Remember the, remember the, the, the account of when Jesus was facing trial and execution. Remember when he's in front of the Roman governor uh, Pontius Pilate, who we now we know quite a bit about Pilate. From, from historical records, and we found his name in the rocks uh, as well. We know quite a bit about him now. But do you remember the dialogue that these two had uh, when Jesus is arrested and they, they want to publicly execute him, uh, but they do not have the death penalty in a legal sense, the Jewish people under Roman rule at that time. And so they want to, to, to get a public execution of Jesus, and so they, they decide to bring him in one of six trials. They decide to bring him to Pontius Pilate. And they, they kind of bother Pilate early in the morning, and they, he comes out of his palace and he ends up interrogating Jesus to try and find out what all this is about. You know, they're asking him to inflict the death penalty on this man. He doesn't even know who he is. And so Pilate is talking to him and he says in John 18, uh, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Remember this? You see it every Easter, you know, in the movies and television. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, is that your own idea? I love it when Jesus answers a question with a question, which he does quite often. We say that's rude today. Well, I guess Jesus was rude because he often does it. Is that your own idea or did others tell you about me? And Pilate replies with another question. He says, well, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you to me. What is it that you have done? Turns the tables back on Jesus. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Wow. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
And so Pilate says, Aha! So you are a king then. And Jesus says, Well, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. There it is again. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate asks this question. Sounds like a postmodernist. What is truth? If you know anything about Pilate, you know that he's on a short leash uh, with, uh, with the emperor at the time. Pilate had made some political mistakes, and he's kind of been thrown to the back, the backwater, if it were, as it were, of Judea, to look after Judea. And you, see, you hear him saying almost with sarcasm, what is truth? What is truth? And this is the question uh, that the culture is asking today. And we're redefining it any way we want to. But according to John and according to Jesus, truth is real. Truth exists. Truth is a standard. It's real. It's not something that we can reinvent and play with as we choose. But it is a standard that is real and that actually does exist. So this week I was, I was uh, over at the, at the mission. I do two days a week there, as you know. And... Um, had a couple of things happen this week that I'll talk to you about today. But the first one is I was, I was talking to, to a lady who's, who's volunteering there and, and kind of sharing my faith with her as we're working. And she says to me, she says, do you read the Bible in your church? And I said, no, we never read the Bible. No, I said, I said yes, we read the Bible. She said, she said, do you read the Old Testament? said, yes, we read the Old Testament, the New Testament, all 66 books of the Bible we read, all 66 of them. She said, oh, you, you read the New Testament? She, I said, well, absolutely we read the New Testament. She said, I don't like the New Testament. I like the Old Testament, she said. I've never heard anyone say that. I've heard people say that they like the New Testament and they find the Old Testament really complicated, really violent, you know, really boring, really hard to understand, you know, Leviticus. Have you ever read Leviticus? But she's like, I love the Old Testament, but I really do not like the New Testament. I said, well, uh, what, what, what don't you like? She said, well, I just don't feel it. I feel the Old Testament, but it's so rich, but I don't feel the New Testament. I said, well, so for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, you, you don't like that? She said, well, she said, I find it's kind of religion, the New Testament, but the Old Testament I feel. I said, well, how do we know anything about Jesus if we don't have the New Testament? She said, well, I just, I, you know, I just don't like it. And, and besides, I am one, she said. I said, well, what do you mean you are one? She said, well, I'm one with the universe, and, and I feel it. And I said, oh, I said, well, the reason why you don't like the New Testament is because your, your view there is coming from the East. Like, that's an Eastern religious view that you're one with the universe, you know? And she said, well, I don't need to read Eastern books to know that. I just feel it. And I said, okay. I said, I said well, how do you know it's true? And she, and she looked at me and she said, I can't know it's true. No one can know it's true, but I feel it, and so it must be true. <laughs> that is the typical, that is the world and the culture that we live in. Those are the people who you're working with. 
Those are the people who your your family, those are the people you're going to school with. That is a typical, typical view in postmodernism. The big problem with it, of course, is, wow, you know, there are people who feel things that aren't so good. They say, well, I really feel like murder would be a good option. <laughs> I really feel it. Does that make it a good option? Does that make it true? I mean, wow, that's feeling something is a pretty suspicious standard by which to establish truth, yes? Uh, but according to her, feeling is everything. It was everything. So we'll see where that all goes. But for John and for Jesus, truth exists in spite of feeling. Not because of feeling, but in spite of feeling. Uh, for John and for Jesus, truth also liberates. It, it, it frees people. So back in John's Gospel, Remember the, the, the argument that Jesus is having with the religious folks? You, you know one part of this probably, those of you who have been in church for any length of time, but maybe you don't know the whole, the whole context of it. He's having, a, he's having a religious debate with the Pharisees, the ultra-religious people of the day, and they're really pushing him into a corner, and Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, is not intimidated by them, and he's pushing back. And uh, you can read the whole thing in John chapter 8, but picking up the debate in the middle of it, um, in John 8.31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus says this, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know that part of it. The truth will set you free. Even non-Christians use that term. The truth will set you free. They don't even know that it was Jesus who said it. But it was Jesus who said it. Then you will know the truth. When will you know the truth? If you hold to my teaching, and if you hold to my teaching, then you are my disciples. And if you are my disciples, and if you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then there's an answer back to Jesus. It may not be from people who believed in him. It may have been from the broader crowd because they reply and they say, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. So under Moses, there was slavery. But under, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. Um, how can you say that we shall be set free? Like, set free from what? And Jesus answers, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, referring to himself, you will be free indeed. So he's talking about truth as something that frees people. Frees people specifically from their own sin, from their own self-destructive ways. So a lot of people who are not Christians look at Christianity and they say, you know what the problem with the world is? It's Christianity. <laughs> because what it does is it binds people. It turns people into religious fruitcakes. And that's the problem is your religion. Well, not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, the truth sets people free. It does not bind them. It sets them free. And finally, on the subject of truth, truth can be found 
If you haven't already caught Jesus' language and John's language, truth can be found specifically in the person of Jesus exclusively and alone. Wow. So John 14 and 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. So there is a way, there is a truth, there is a life, and you're looking at all of those in one person. This is what Jesus was saying. And no one, exclusive statement, comes to the Father except through one way and through one person, through me. He is making a claim, well, that ultimately got him put on a cross, but this is the way that it's defined in the Bible. This is truth. It exists, it liberates, it can be found in the person of Jesus. Well, what then about lies? Um, do you know that you wouldn't know what a lie was unless you knew what truth is? You don't have any standard by which to call something a lie unless you know what truth is. So you want to know, you want to know more about what a lie is? Well, you study truth more and more and you'll find that out. And so for John and for Jesus, lies, by, by definition, anything that opposes the truth is a lie. And you see this in, in, uh, in verse 7. Uh, John is warning these people about these deceivers, he says. And he says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Such a person is the deceiver. And the Antichrist, you say, what is all this about? I don't understand. It seems it's a very strong language. What was going on back then, probably the culture that he's writing to, is influenced by a heresy back then called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism meant that people were saved by secret knowledge. And so once they attained this kind of knowledge, they would achieve some kind of religious, spiritual... Uh, satisfaction, salvation, but it, it, this was uh, the, the problem with the, that the Gnostics had with Jesus is that he was human. So the idea that God could become flesh, skin and bone, for them, impossible. Because flesh, skin and bone is not the way of salvation, it's the way of destruction. The way of salvation for the Gnostics is secret knowledge. And the body, the physical body, the physical world is the problem for Gnostics. Okay, so when John is writing and he says, these people who have gone out into the world and gone out from being insiders, now they've left, they have left the idea that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and they've gone out into the world and they're saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. So this is probably the influence of Gnosticism. Any of you heard of um, Scientology today? Tom Cruise, Scientology. Scientology is very similar in its worldview to Gnosticism. Okay, uh, salvation through secret knowledge and so on. So uh, this is what John is writing to and this is why he's bothered. He says you need to be very, very careful of these people because they're going to present Jesus to you um, as not the real Jesus. They're deceptive and he uses you know word antichrist here. They are in direct opposition to the truth. This is what he's saying. It's a warning. But also for him. By definition, anything that defies truth, that contradicts truth, is a lie. 
Now, bringing it to you and me, uh, reading a few studies about lying. Um, it, this is the most recent one that I found. 60% of people cannot go 10 minutes without lying. 60%. You say, well, maybe I'm in the 40%. Um, so just, just reading some things for you from this study, okay? Uh, the, the author says this. There are two things you can say for sure about human beings. Our opposable thumbs uh, make, uh, make us great as, at using tools, and we are all big, fat liars, <laughs> so says this article. By age four, 90% of children have grasped the, grasped the concept of lying by age four, and it just gets worse from there. How bad is it? The author asks, according to, uh, to his study, and the study, again, trying to find recent studies was 2002, so this is you know, almost a couple of decades ago, but I suppose it's worse even today. According to that study by the University of Massachusetts, 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once in the conversation. Um, even that number makes it sound better than it actually is. Those people in the study who did lie actually told an average of three lies during their brief chat. And maybe you're sitting there right now, the author says, and you say, well, maybe you're part of the 40% that didn't lie. Uh, but she says that's what the liars in the study thought also. When they watched the taped conversations back of their conversations, they were shocked at how many fibs they had told. And the author goes on, we lie to everyone. Our parents get the worst of it. According to another study in a periodical, I think the day America told the truth, with 86% of us lying to our parents regularly. Wow. Yeah, you looked at your, at your son there. Yeah. Followed by friends, 75%, siblings, 73%, and spouses, 69%. My goodness. But in general... The author says, we lie about things that aren't important. Little things that we think will make us look better or more likable. Uh, in, a, in a survey by a British film rental company, 30% of the people who responded had lied about seeing the movie The Godfather. <laughs> so they were surveyed by a, a movie rental company who asked them, have you seen the movie The Godfather? And they said yes, and they lied. They lied about it to make themselves, you know, look more knowledgeable or whatever. And even the author admits that they're part of the 30% who lied about seeing the Godfather. We want, we want to fit in, the author argues. We tell a little white lie. This makes everyone else, uh, you know, lie as well. And before you know it, three out of ten people are saying that they saw the Godfather when they never saw the Godfather. So these are the kinds of things the author says that we lie about. They tend to be smaller things. But sometimes we do lie about things that matter. According to one estimate, 40% of people lie on their resumes. It, when we write a resume, we don't call it lying. We just put the good stuff on the resume. We don't put the bad stuff on, right? <laughs> and while that's something for employers to be wary of, the author continues, it's worse if you're part of the 30% of internet users who are looking for love on a dating site. Oh, this is the place of lies, right? According to a study by Scientific American magazine, a whopping 90% of people 
looking for a date online lie in their profile. Now, I know couples who have gotten married who met online. So, you know, I, I did their weddings and I make sure that they're honest with each other, you know, before they get married. But, but apparently people lie a lot on these dating websites. So the biggest fib told by women is guess what? What do you think they're lying about? Their weight, exactly, yeah. So the biggest fib by women, on average, ladies claim to weigh eight and a half pounds less than they actually do. Men, on the other hand, what do you think they lie about? Age? Yeah, well, it, it, according to this, they use their profile to convince potential partners that they are taller, <laughs> richer, or better educated than they actually are. Before you vow never to trust anyone again, the author of the article says, here's some food for thought. A study by the University of Toronto in Canada found that it is actually the most trusting people who are the best able to tell when they are being lied to. We tell lies all the time. All the time. Now, we may say it's nothing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but for John, it's a big deal. For Jesus, it's a big deal. Um, lies, by definition, oppose the truth. And there is, in the mind of Jesus, a chief liar. Right? And Jesus talks about this, again, picking up that same story in John chapter 8, the debate with the religious people. And Jesus continues, and they're fighting back with him, and they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, um, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abram did not do such, uh, Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father, he says. Well, this is going to get them angry, and they say, hold the phone here. We are not Ill illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And watch what Jesus does. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language unclear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus saying that? This is the most religious group in, the, in that part of the world at the time. Like these people are not dumb. And he's saying to them, you belong to your father, the devil that's who you belong to he says to them and you want to carry out your father's desires my goodness what a what a statement he was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies you sung it before when the lies are louder than the truth, when they seem louder than the truth, there is a such thing as truth, my friends, and there is also a such thing as lies. And the chief liar, the professional liar, 
the slickest liar that there is, the liar that only knows how to lie, according to Jesus, is the devil himself. You know, we pick on politicians today. And we say such and such politician, I won't name names, has you know, told 10,000 lies since they took office. Well, that's nothing compared to who Jesus is talking about here. You're talking about the slickest, most professional, most skilled liar that there is, the devil himself. So for Jesus, there's truth. And for Jesus and for John, there's lies. These things are real and they matter. And then finally, talking about love. For John and for Jesus, uh, love is not a feeling per se. It's not an emotion per se. It is a command. So again, you see why John repeats himself, repeats himself. He says, I ask, I'm writing to you, uh, a, not a command that is new, it's not a new command. It's one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Seems simple enough. But this is a command from God. This is a command from Jesus. It's something that we're told to do. Do you know why? Because our default is not to do it. Our instinct is not to do it. Our instinct is not to love, not in this way. This is not talking about a, a, you know, a nice gooey feeling love. This is a love that honors another person before you honor yourself. It's a love that sacrifices self for somebody else. And what Jesus is saying and what John is saying is that is what I want you to do over and over and over again. It is a command. It is not something that comes natural for us. It's not something that comes instinctive. Uh, instinctively for us, this is something that we're told to do and we're told over and over and over again because it is not easy to do. Not that definition of love. Not only is it a command, it's relational. So he says, you've got to love one another. Not, you know, love yourself. <laughs> it's you're loving one another. There is a relational thing to it. This is what the, the, the church is about. In, in, in the church, the context is supposed to be you've got people who are growing and who are loving one another. They're preferring one another above themselves. They're looking out for the needs of somebody else before they look after their own needs. They're sacrificing on behalf of somebody else. It's, it's, a, it, it's a definition of love that is quite countercultural in most cases, but it is relational relational and that's what's supposed to happen in the church but not only this love is demonstrated by uh, 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 obedience <laughs> by obedience so this is love he defines it for us that we walk in obedience to his commands do you want to know if you love god do you want to know if you are doing this love one another properly here's how you know we walk in obedience to his commands, the commands of God, the commands of Jesus. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. You do what God says. That is a demonstration that you love him. Uh, and some people get all bent out of shape and they say, well, you know, that sounds like a slave. Obey. What am I, a slave? Well, no, you're you're. You obey because of a relationship that's based on trust. And when you have that, you do what God says. 
If you truly trust God, then you do what he asks you to do, and that is a demonstration of your love for him. But if you don't have a relationship with God, if you have no trust of God, you're going to feel like he's telling you to do things like a slave. Let me give you an example. Again, uh, something I experienced this week. So there was a team uh, from a church in Niagara Falls, one of our own churches in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, that came to serve uh, for one day uh, at the mission uh, this week. And so I run their, their thrift store, which is this massive, has a whole bunch of stock in it. Some of you have been there and seen how big it is. And I run it and I have a little team of volunteers and I run it two days a week. And so I had this team at my disposal, 11 people. So I was wringing my hands together thinking, oh, yes, I'm going to work this team to the bone. Young people, I was told. So I was like, oh, they're going to they're going to they're going to be sorry. They saw my face at the end of the day because I'm going to push them like they've never been pushed. So in comes this team, you know, a bunch of 20 year olds. And it's like, oh, this is perfect. So I had them do every dirty job that I could possibly think of. Every, just move this, this huge, ugly, broken piece of furniture and put it over here. Clean this up, empty this, do this garbage, do this, do this. At one point, there were little kids who came into the store and they had those, you know, those freezies. You know what freezies are? And their freezies spilled all over the floor, you know, it looked like they were red, so it looked like blood on the floor, you know, it looked horrible. And I said to, the, I said to one of them, I said, I need you to clean up that, that mess. It looks terrible. Clean up the freezy spill, you know. And I gave them every rotten job, every, I mean, and every time I gave them a job to do, they smiled and they did it. Every time. I was shocked at how good their attitude was. And, I gave, and on purpose, I gave them the most like, bothersome, gross, frustrating labor jobs that I could possibly think of just to push them and see what they would do, but also because I wanted to get stuff done. And they kept going and going and going, big smiles on their faces. So finally, I said to one of them, I said, I said let me ask you a question. Like, wh- why are you doing this? Like, wh- what is this all about? Why are you here? Well, this is an internship program with our church in Niagara Falls. And I happen to know the church, and I happen to know the pastor, fantastic church, a great, great pastor. And I, and I said, um, so tell me about the program. I said, what's, what's your goal? Why are you doing this? Like, do you get a certificate at the end? Do you get, what do you get at the end? And she looked at me, she said, a closer walk with God. <laughs> and I laughed, I said, a closer walk with God. That's why you're doing what you're doing. And I was playing with them a little bit, and they knew I was a pastor. I was playing with them. She said, yeah, that's why we're doing it, because we want a closer walk with God. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Who pays for it? She said, we do. I said, how much you pay? She says, oh, it's like $3,000, and, you know, we, get, we, get, we have to do these, we have to go on trips, and we have to serve in these places, and we have to take Bible college courses. I just sat there scratching my head. I said, my goodness, what an example. Like, it's right out of, it's right out of the New Testament. When you have a love relationship with God, you do what God says. It's not because I was giving them rotten jobs to do. It's because they were doing what God wanted. And they were like, this is what God wants us to do. We're growing in our relationship with God. Good, clean that up. Good, fix that. Good, move that. No, you're not done yet. Pick it up, move it, close it, clean it. 
change it, fix it, over and over and over again. Big smiles on their faces. Why? Not because of me, but because what they were doing was out of obedience to God. Oh my goodness. That's, that's how you grow when you obey. When you obey. And he's so obedient. Look at that. That's how you grow, folks. It's not, it's not by, well, you know, I come to church and so I'm growing. No, you're not. You're coming to church. Do you want to grow? That means every area of your life, you put it to God. You put it to God and you say, here it is. I will do what you say. I can't stand the person who I work for. I can't stand the person who I work with. But I will work with them. And I will work for them. Because I'm working for God. I'm not working for them or with them. I'm working for God. And out of this, I learn to be more and more Christ-like. Oh my goodness, what an example. It wasn't, well, you know, I'll do what you say, but I don't want to do it with this person. I don't like that, you know, I would put them together and say, you and you, you go do this. And it wasn't, well, I don't really, or I don't really know how to do it. Figure it out. <laughs> if you don't know how, figure it out. Well, you know, the hat doesn't fit on my head. Make it fit. Figure it out. And they figured it out, boy. They figured it out over and over and over again. Why? Because they learned that lesson of obedience. My goodness, what an attitude. At the end of the day, they were, they were together with the director of the, of the mission who's a Christian. And they were praying at the end. I just looked at them and I said, I didn't even pray with them. I just left. And I said, you know what? What a fantastic Christ-like attitude these people have. What an attitude. That's why they did such a great job because of their attitude. A1, they will go far in life because they have learned this lesson. Love is based on, there's evidence of it, when you do what God says in every area of your life. You say, here it is, God. I will do it. Painful as it may be. Frustrating as it may be. Dirty as it may be. Labor as it may be. I will do it because I do it for you. 